Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name's Steve Ingham. The idea behind these podcasts is to explore the science, the art, the purpose and the origins of high performance. I'm keen to discuss these concepts, the people who've achieved at the highest level, those people who have been driving force in making high performance happen, and from those who've explored and researched aspects of human performance in real depth. You can subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or for more performance insights at supportingchampions.co.uk. And if you're enjoying the podcast already, then we'd really love for you to provide a review on iTunes. A massive thank you to Rachie Rue 31 Hoy Legs, sounds interesting, 17DHK for some fantastic reviews on iTunes this week. Thanks very much, everyone. In this week's episode, I talked to Professor Liz Stokoe. Now, Liz is a professor of social interaction and specializes in conversational analysis. So I caught up with Liz when we were both speaking at Cheltenham Science Festival just a few weeks ago, and it was fascinating to hear her insights into how conversations are structured, initial rapport, the aggressive moves that some people make, and how you might go about convincing people. Yeah. So, Liz Stokoe, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to, to, to meet you and see you. Uh, we're here at Cheltenham Science Festival. And um, at, so, what have you been sharing with the, with the audiences here? Well, yesterday I sat on a panel with other great scholars looking at the future of human communication. And we all talked about uh, the obvious thing, which is, you know, what happens to people's face-to-face conversational skills as we increasingly do stuff on, on smartphones and, and things. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that for, you know, the foreseeable future, and certainly t- until I'm dead and gone, um, <laughs> uh, there'll still be people talking for me to study. <laughs> right. Okay. So looking forward, very, very much a perspective, a theme about feeling connected. So that's, that's very much the heart of what you yeah. do. So you're a professor of of social interaction, yeah. specialising in conversational analysis. Yeah. What a fascinating area that must be to work in. It is. I mean, my research job when I'm doing my research rather than other things at the university is to study recordings of people talking like, like we're doing now, um, trying to forensically examine all of the component activities that make up a complete encounter. So everything that we did from meeting and saying hello, setting up this this interview, uh, doing the interview, and then at some point we will end the interview. And, and when you study encounters of any type, whether it be someone at the supermarket checkout or people on a first date or at the doctors, you discover when you kind of zoom out and look at those entire encounters, more than one of them, you know, a few of them, you start to notice how organised and systematic talk is as opposed to what we think or certainly you know it's common for people to think talk's very messy everyone's idiosyncratic everyone's driven by their personalities but what conversation analysis shows is how pushed and pulled around by language we are much more than we realize mostly because we don't look right yeah so i'm already very self-conscious about yeah. talking to a conversational analysis I know, yeah. does, does that happen when you're yeah. in social engagement sometimes yeah yeah um <laughs> I, I i met my partner on, on a blind date um and he knew that I'd studied speed dating, so he was a bit worried right from oh the get-go that, I would, that somehow he would be dated. But the thing is, I'm not doing it live. Uh, the, the point of doing conversational analysis is that you're scrutinising slow mo- in slow motion. Right. Um, everyday life as it, ha- as it happens, to be sure, but, but the expertise of a conversational analyst is to, in some ways, depending on what setting we're looking at, draw out the tacit expertise that people have at talking when they don't know it, and also, of course, show when they're doing things that we know are not going to lead to a happy outcome at the end of, of that conversation. Right, okay. Yeah. 
Wow, so how much do you actually feel like you're in it whilst perhaps maybe observing the conversation? Do you sometimes flip from one to the other? Where you think, I'm now, I'm now quite interested about what's happening in this conversation. Oh, hang on a minute, I need to engage in that conversation. It does happen sometimes, maybe especially with people that you're meeting for the first time. Right. Um, and I'm quite interested in the first few seconds of conversations, not, not in a traditional psychological interest in first impressions in the way that we sort of know there's lots of research on first impressions, but more, you know, how do people get going on a conversation when you're meeting somebody for the first time? I, I've got a bunch of kind of, you know, pseudo-scientific categories for people, and conferences and parties are a great place to spot some of those types. So, for example, uh, you'll be... This, I'm hoping that this will immediately resonate so you're at an event or a party, a conference, whatever like that, and someone comes up to you and they say hello and they, they shake your hand, but at the same time, they're kind of looking oh, yeah. over your shoulder for the more important people in the room. And, and, and I call them mis- misgreeters. Misgreeters? Yeah, and you can tell a misgreeter because they're basically, although they're saying hello to you, you can tell that they're not interested in you at all. So, so that's one category, which is a bit of a joke, but I, but I think people recognise it. And then sometimes those misgreeters also turn out to be recalibrators, which is, you know, maybe half an hour later, they come back over to you, sort of bouncing across the room and say, oh, Steve, it's you. I didn't realise it was you. And all of a sudden they've decided you're quite important and I would like to restart that conversation. But probably you've decided, well, when you thought I wasn't very important, you didn't want to talk to me, so I've I've already got your number, your your conversational number. Wow, so misgreeters, when I've experienced that... And, and to be honest, you have to admit, occasionally you think, I, I need to look for some, an hour yeah. of a conversation. Yeah. You feel, you don't feel valued. Yeah. You, you're immediately thinking, hang on a minute, you're not, you're not listening to me at all. Yeah, yeah that, I, that's quite common actually. Yeah. I, think, mm. I think lots of people are, I assume, unaware of how bad they are at doing that initial greeting. So can I ask you how you got, uh, how you got into this area? Yeah. I did a psychology degree with lots of traditional psychology in it and nothing like what I do now. And then I got a, a place to do a PhD uh, with a woman called Dr. Eunice Fisher, who had, she must have seen something in me because I don't think I had a particularly promising uh, background really to do a PhD. I wasn't even totally sure what a PhD was. All I knew is I wanted to carry on doing something psychological and I was applying for everything that was in The Guardian on a Tuesday. And, and, and she <laughs> must have spotted a kindred spirit of some kind. And she was studying... Um, kids interacting with computers in the very first days of computers so sort of classroom interaction and how computers were transforming or you know augmenting conversation uh, classroom spaces and my I, I wasn't initially I didn't know anything about conversation analysis at all and she wasn't really a conversation analyst either but she knew where to steer me towards right. so my PhD ended up being a study of university tutorials as they happen no one had really studied university tutorials, or at least hardly anybody, compared to how many people were studying classroom interaction in schools. So I did an analysis of what happens when students are sitting around talking in groups and when they're in tutorials. And although there were some interesting educational things there, like I noticed that when students talked about the work that they were doing, they would never say things like, oh, that's an amazing contribution you've just made. Instead, they would say things like, oh, swallow the diction we have you. And it seemed as though it was kind of cool to not do any preparation, to show your sort of one-step-removed scepticism from the academic endeavour rather than to embrace it, which I... But whilst at the same time, we kind of knew behind the scenes students were probably working away to the best of they, 
their ability. Right. So we could really see in these materials that students were reluctant to show that they'd done lots of work in front of other people whilst actually working behind the scenes. Oh, and they would kind of police each other's contributions in, in that way. But, but the, the, the thing that I became best known for after finishing the PhD for a while was looking at gender and interaction and busting myths around the idea that women and men talk differently, which was very dominant in the, at the time in the early 90s. Um, John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus had come out and it hadn't taken hold quite so powerfully but it, obviously everyone knows that it's mm. become just part of our cultural idiom but there's very little evidence from a conversation analytic point of view in fact I'd even go as far as to say there is zero evidence from a conversation analyst point of view that women and men talk differently in systematic ways and that was frustrating to me in a way as a feminist because I was convinced that gender was around there you know it's all around us making yeah. the difference but how can you how could you pin it down if you didn't just start with the idea well she's saying that because she's a woman and he's saying that because he's a man so what I did was start to look at moments where people made gender relevant to the things that they were doing and it turned out that you could find people invoking gender in ways that were also quite systematic and I pursued that across my career for the next sort of 10 years so looking at things like a group of students sitting around doing a task and one of them said, oh, one of us is meant to be writing this down. Who's going to do it? And one of the people in the group points at one of the other people in the group and says, oh, well, woman, secretary, female. And makes, all of a sudden, gender the relevant thing about this activity they're currently in. And that student becomes the person who writes down all the notes of that turns out to be other uh, group members who are all blokes. Mm. And it really impacts on her participation in that discussion. Right. But, so, so what I had found here was a moment where it didn't it wasn't that I was saying oh well it's a woman so she's talking like this which is so clunky I mean just think of all the women you know all the men you know and how different they all are but they were making gender relevant right and so then I started to to pursue well okay that's a one-off how am I how am I possibly going to capture moments like that I know I've got no idea when they're going to come up but over my over my over the next sort of 10-15 years or so I started collecting lots and lots of data sets and started to find that people sometimes made gender relevant in the same way to do the same thing. So, for example, in police interviews with suspects who've been arrested for um, uh, assault, they would deny the assault on the basis that they were the kind of men who didn't hit women, and they all did it in the same way. I'm not saying that it worked as a denial, but you could see that all of a sudden, when gender hadn't been a part of the discussion at all, they'd, they'd, it would zoom in at right. the point where they were denying the thing they were accused of, just sort of the same way, same action, same thing every time. So, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I seem to be sort of digesting this in the way that it's not about women taking roles in a Sheryl Sandenberg lean-in kind of way. Yeah. This is about uh, assigning and using uh, women-men split assumptions and stereotypes in our conversation. Absolutely, and, and you can broaden that out then to any identity category you care to think think about. Mm. So psychologists and sociologists, when you think about identity, there's like, you know, five or six categories that most people study, so gender, sexuality, ethnicity, maybe age. Um, and if you only start with those categories, you miss all the things that people are doing sort of in, in the wild, if you like, with categories. So you would never know that you could use you're a bit of a Barbara Streisand in the same way that you might say something racist or sexist unless you actually st study the way people can turn almost anything 
into an aspect of your identity. And in that okay. particular encounter, it was a neighbour dispute in which one of the participants was convinced that her neighbour was sort of an anti-Jewish, anti-American racist. And her evidence for that was, he calls me a Barbara Streisand. Right. Yeah. So okay. you, w- you wouldn't get to that particular bit of maybe racism if you only started with what women and men talk like you know women say this and men say that you would never find those things Mm. you would just assume that well you know I'm interrupting you or you're interrupting me or I'm talking more or you're you're talking more because I'm a woman and you're a man and that would be the end of it which is very limited Mm. just reproduces stereotypes as well right okay so that that reinforcing and this this concept in certainly in in coaching and working with athletes and, and I presume to a broader management of people, um, there, there is this question that comes up often about well, how do you coach women differently from men? And, and there are lots of people that, that have lots to say about that because they've done that exclusively. Yep. Or that, that's been the thing that they've done successfully. Yep. Having coached both men and women, I still scratch my head and think, I'm not sure I'd communicate in the same way, but... I don't know. Should I? Well, I guess it's partly an empirical question. What I would say is that I know a lot of women, and I'm quite unlike some of the women that I know. So if you had one style that you assume was going to work for a woman, it might work for a woman, but it might work for a man. Yeah. And, and it's just very... You know, for me, I'd want to challenge the presupposition that guides us that way. It's just a really easy category to reach for. And so we go there and we make those assumptions. And in every every single time, you know, another book comes out on how to coach a woman versus how to coach a man, it just reproduces itself. And we stop. It's very hard to stop a juggernaut. Uh, But yeah. Okay, so so for me, I've always thought I personalise my communication. I try and get the best out of that person as opposed to... I have a particular way of communicating to ladies and yes, men. Yes, that, okay. that sounds better. And, and we would call that in, in conversation analytic terms, recipient design. It's a basic principle for how we interact, which is that we are constantly, and we're doing it right now, which of course makes us very self-conscious, we're, we're con- constantly monitoring the people we're talking to, our recipient or recipients, for whether anything we're doing is landing with them. And if it doesn't, if I, I can see misunderstanding in your, on your, in your body, in your, right. those things, very quickly, and we adjust. So we're constantly... So if, I, if I'm trying to persuade you of something, I can see it isn't working, not just from how you look, but maybe from how... You know the fractional delays in your responses, or the placement of your mm-hmms, or whether you did a mm-hmm or a yes. It, it, we can change the direction of what we're doing okay. very nimbly. We see that all the time in talk. Okay, very good. I so when I re-describe the concept as I think I'm hearing it and understanding it, yeah. I'm putting disclaimers in. Hopefully that I'm not offending you yeah. or th- those <laughs> sorts of. I presume that's the mechanics of yeah. how it works. Yeah, you know, oh, just God. really simple things like. Um, if you want to invite someone to go for a cup of tea on Saturday and you ask them and you say, do you want, do you want to go for tea on Saturday? You'll be able to... I can show you this forensically because human beings kind of know it tacitly but they maybe don't know it and they don't know it sort of as a, from, from a scientific point of view until you sort of lay it out to them. But basically, you might say to someone, do you want a cup of tea on Saturday? And then you're so good at monitoring that they're not going to say yes to that, you immediately latch on or oh, Sunday. And the reason we say, oh, Sunday, is because you can tell that Saturday isn't going to work. Okay. Yeah. And that, what we're also doing all the time is designing our terms at talk to make it 
easy. I mean, easy is a very non-technical way of saying it, but basically, I want to make it easy for you to say yes and not no, because no's are harder to say than yeses. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of oriented to keeping the conversation going, keeping us aligned, keeping us moving around our encounter together, rather than kind of moving around the encounter and not really yeah. together. So I saw your TED talk, and uh, and that was fascinating. In the the point seven seconds, for example, yeah. between a, a, a proposition and uh, not sure, yeah. Yeah. and how that, if, if that's even longer, then that's that's yeah. not so good. Yeah. Um, but can I just jump to the point you talked about first movers in your yeah. TED talk, and that's yeah. that's fascinating. Tell us about first movers. First movers uh, popped into my mind for the TED talk. So it's not a technical scientist term for things, oh, okay. but 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 on the, but on the other hand, it does really capture something that we recognise in conversation. And I often think parents are quite good first movers. So you might arrive at your parents' house, or you might say something to your kid, and before you've even said hello, what you've said is, "Why are you wearing that top?" And we recognise that parents are somehow entitled to make those kind of rather challenging first moves without saying hello or anything else. Yeah. So you know. I, I'm sure my mum will forgive me for, for saying this, but I can remember once my mum said something to me like, actually, I think it was this bag that I'm carrying now, this rucksack. Why are you carrying that rucksack? Because I think she would much prefer me to have a dainty handbag. And and I remember thinking, so if I, if I said to her something like, blimey, mum, if I criticised your choice of handbag, you'd be really upset. But I don't say that to her, of course. I try to just not engage. Because if I said to her, gosh, mum, if I said something about your bag, you would be you would be really bothered. She would then probably say something like, oh, no, I can't, I can't say anything right. And right. somehow um, it's hard to um, get past that first mover other than doing things like we see in the TED Talk. So uh, Gordon phones his girlfriend, Dana. She says, where have you been all morning? And he says, hello. Yeah. Because hello is what belongs at that point in the conversation. <laughs> so you can kind of push back on a first mover by doing you know, other conversational things, kind of ignoring the implicit challenge that mm. might be in that turn. Um, yeah, so, yeah, first so, movers. So why do people do first movers? Because they're, they're clearly not very productive. They're not very nice. They, they, they put yeah. people on the back foot to yeah. start off with. It doesn't yeah. take people forward. I don't know, but some people definitely do them. I mean, I think with, when it comes to parents and children, you partly do it because you have such a close relationship that you maybe don't need to do other things to maintain it. It's a kind of unconditional thing, so, so it's fine. Um, and I'm pretty sure I've made loads of first moves to my mum as well. But, when it, but, but interestingly, at the actual TED event where I'd spoken about these, these first movers, there was a rap party afterwards. And somebody came up to me and one of the other speakers when we were chatting and he said to her, you were nervous. And she looked at me and said, first mover. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so, she, uh, 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 so she kind of skewered him with, with that. Uh, and it was great. Yeah. But, but you do sort of wonder how some people feel totally entitled to just come up and say that kind of thing, yeah. apropos of nothing at all, and expect to come away winning friends and influencing people, and they're really not. How do you deal with first movers? What's the best strategy? I think if you go and look at the TED Talk, you'll see Gordon dealing with, with Dana quite well by saying hello so so you know he picks the phone up she's phoned him he says hello and and she says hello where have you been all morning and rather than get straight into what do you mean where have i been all morning i, I you know we're not married mm. he just says hello right. and, and kind of does the thing that belongs at the start of a conversation right, so it sort okay. of pushes pushes back slightly on on the challenge so eventually he does say i've been at a music workshop but he doesn't say it straight away defensively 
and he doesn't not answer it and instead, you know, just get straight into an argument with her. So I think it's quite good to just say, hello. And the only time I can honestly say that I can manage to do this in my own life is um, with my neighbour. When I first moved into my house, I can remember almost the very first conversation I had with, with one of the neighbours was I was opening the blind of my bedroom one morning, opening the window, and then my neighbour was stood, 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 stood in the court, shared courtyard at the bottom. And she, and she sort of looked up at me and she said, your gutter's leaking. Oh. And I said, hello. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to get straight into that responding to the first move because what hopefully you're then doing is socialising that person a little bit Okay. you know I can't say I'm always very good at this and I'm sure I'm a first mover a lot myself but, but the point is I think to try and do something that you know takes the heat out of it and just do something terribly bright and you know my way of, of dealing with, with neighbours is to be very very bright um, and not okay. get into anything like you've got it leaking you know I, I will it's annoying me I will fix it I've literally just moved into the house don't worry um, but but yeah to just say hello <laughs> yeah. so so a first move is not to be met with another first move absolutely uh, type so yeah. two wrongs don't make a right yeah exactly okay. especially if you but you know I, I'm actually not saying that there's anything wrong with having a good argument you know argument we can't everything isn't humans aren't designed to always be happy conversations aren't always designed to be smooth conflict is good if people didn't challenge others then we wouldn't ever learn anything new and of course it's equally problematic to be in a situation where you feel like you can't challenge somebody yeah um, that's very dangerous yeah so that's fascinating and really useful tip for, for people in life for, as as a conflict comes at them they're often on the back foot don't know actually what to do so that's fantastic we're kind of interested in this idea of, of how we respond under pressure because we, we, we all do experience different types of pressure or we feel nervous or full of self-doubt at different times and certainly in performance sport that ratchets up towards the big moment that you have to perform and and what we often see is a deterioration in social skills as people start going inward a, a bit or, or maybe outward and, and their habits become a little bit more amplified, yep. or the poor habits. Um, so I'm, that's something that when I watched your TED talk, I thought, oh, I recognise that when people are under the, under the pump a bit. So I've been studying with a colleague of mine, Ryan Zickfeld, we've been looking at police negotiators talking to suicidal persons in crisis. And what is so amazingly skillful about the negotiators is that they are talking to somebody who is themselves at you know a very precarious point in their life. It might be the end of their life at any moment. Yeah. And the negotiator has to keep that person talking because clearly every single time you get the person in crisis to say something, to take a turn, they're choosing life. So those negotiators have to really overcome um, any kind of... They, 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 on the one hand, of course, they're they're very emo- they're very emotionally involved in it as a human being, but they have to stay really calm under that kind of pressure. Mm. And what's fascinating is that in some of those interactions, well, there's always a second negotiator as well, whose job it is to support the first negotiator. And I, sometimes that means physically supporting somebody. So if the negotiator is in a cherry picker talking to somebody who's on a roof, yeah. then the second negotiator's job is to sort of really physically hold on to the first negotiator. Yeah. But sometimes their job is to just say, carry on, you know, keep going, you're right. doing well. What they also do sometimes, though, is they will try to feed a line um, to the negotiator. And that's really fascinating because what you've got is 
second negotiator doing live conversation analysis in a way. I see. Seeing, you know, monitoring the conversation between the main negotiator and the person in crisis and making a decision that an intervention is needed here. And some of those interventions are really awful, very ineffective. And, of course, the challenge, if you are the first negotiator talking to a person in crisis, you have to, you know, you're probably being the most careful conversationalist you, you, you might ever be, your best self, if you like. Mm. You've got somebody in your ear telling you to say some other thing. Because conversation is so finely calibrated and so finely tuned, it's very difficult to hear that and then turn it into a turn that is somehow still fitted into the unfolding conversation in such a way that the person in crisis doesn't know that you've been fed a line as well. So those moments are really interesting for research and training because they often go wrong. Wow. Yeah. So I can, I can see the, the dynamic that, that having somebody else's brain looking at the situation cleanly whilst you're not experienced as heightened emotion but I can almost imagine the TV presenter that's getting the producers and directors shouting in all of the ears and you can have to process that but also perform and how conflicting that could be to to how effective you are what's great in a way about the fact that there is an an N2 is that they I mean, and, and actually all of the negotiators rotate around being the first negotiator or second negotiator, but they're the most trainable. Because if you can get um, the negotiators to become, you know, kind of conversation analysts a little bit, then they can start to have that one step removed observation of the interaction and have some insight into where it would be effective to intervene and where it definitely wouldn't. I can imagine how valuable that is in generally, yeah. whether you're presenting or whether yes. you're pitching or whether you're talking to an athlete just before their, their crucial moment but Absolutely. having somebody in the background to say here's how I thought you got on yeah, um, yeah. Or, or potentially to feed lines yeah. to, to give that feedback and learn and adapt as you go yeah and this this kind of underpins the training work that I do I've, I've got this method called the conversation analytic role. I want to ask you about that uh, do, you want, do you want me to keep talking oh yeah yeah, no, yeah. yeah please yeah um, so, so the conversation analytic role play method or, or calm and what I do is basically show whoever it is that I'm training real conversations coming out on screen line by line like you saw with the TED talk so you've got the transcript the audio or the video coming out in sync allowing people to live through real encounters as they happen uh, mostly looking at people doing jobs that are a bit like theirs or actually their job and then we stop it at a certain point and then say to people okay I want you to discuss in your small groups what you might do next so it's not role play in that uh, way that you would ask people to simulate the role of, okay. and I've got big problems with that. That we could talk, let's pretend, talk, we, yeah. I don't, uh, and I've got I've got empirical evidence for why that isn't very effective. But we can talk about that later if you like. Um, but 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 what people are doing is so they're not role playing exactly. But what they're doing is in a they're, they're they're live in the moment, and they can think about what they might do in that given, in that situation. Then see what the the police officer, the doctor, the salesperson, whoever, what they did actually, right. and then think about whether that was effective or not. And what I'm doing behind the scenes is, is you know, bringing to bear, you know, five or six extracts in which there is going to be a negative outcome from the point of view of the, the professional, and then another bunch where there's going to be a positive outcome. And so it enables people to learn by seeing the expertise of others in a way that you just never get access to in ordinarily and and one of the most surprising things very often is that the things that work might not be in the training manual which is why role play can be really problematic because if you are doing a role play you tend to 
talk according to the guidance. You turn the guidance into the thing, into okay. the into the conversation. If you're being assessed on your skills as a conversational as a conversationalist, well, as a well as a conversationalist, as a salesperson, a doctor, a medic, or uh, a police officer. And you are turning what you know is in the training manual into your conversation with the actor playing the part of the suspect or the patient, then you're never going to know anything much about what actually works in a real encounter because you're being assessed on your ability to turn the manual into a conversation now. Mm. And what's in the man- manual might be wrong. Right. Quite often is. Wow. wow. Yeah. So I'm always imagining... Because no one likes role play. It's, it's a bit like those introductions. Those are yeah. big group. Let's say we we'll introduce ourselves, and suddenly your heart rate goes off yeah. through the roof. Yeah. Let's, let's do role play. Is another one. It's yeah. like a, probably the highest level of stress that someone experiences yeah. besides shopping. Yeah. Um, but so you're almost pressing pause um, in a moment, uh, almost like the, 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 the movie playing, and then you press pause, and you then yeah. see what happens next almost. Yeah, yeah. it's your turn to talk, what are you going to say? Right. And then we see what the person actually said, and sometimes it's effective, and it's also the thing people thought they might do, and sometimes it's effective and it's the opposite of what people thought they might do, or they their training has told them it should happen next, yeah. and then you can see whether these things actually work or not. Wow, and, that's, and you found that to be far more effective than the, let's pretend, let's adopt a persona of, uh, of somebody else that we're not. Um, I suppose what I would say is that it, I don't know whether it's more effective in the sense that I haven't really done many evaluations. What I would say is that the, the approach is in a lot of demand. So, so I do a lot of work with lots of different organisations. People just hear about it and ask me, can we do a little study? Can we, can we analyse some recordings and then can we have some training at the end? And what I can pretty much guarantee is at least you're getting empirically grounded, evidence-based things that work rather than what the boss remembers over 20 years of experience they think they do in a conversation and turning that into the guidance which mm. may, maybe it's right but most, maybe it's wrong okay. yeah and, or maybe you're just finding very different things you know the focus isn't on what happens at the start the focus is it's really important to get this thing right bang in the middle you know yeah I also want to ask you about the, the sort of mediator example that you shared in the TED talk most specifically because you said you can ask me about that afterwards and, yeah. I, and I was like oh hang on a minute I, I don't know what, what to ask but now I can yeah. um, so the example is a mediator for relationship management and, and there's a sort of a, a neutral philosophical why do we do what we do version and you said that's almost the other alternative is to what do we do the process procedural option and yeah. you, you shared the, yeah. the philosophical ideological way um, and can you t- talk to us about the, the best way of almost communicating what you do and what you can bring in terms of the services that you can offer? Yeah, so with those mediators, I was really interested in the fact that many of the initial inquiry calls between a member of the public, he doesn't know what mediation is and probably doesn't want it because, let's face it, if we're in a dispute, we don't want to sit down and talk with somebody who is not on anybody's side. You want the neighbour to be arrested, evicted, you know, killed whatever you want they want them gone but so mediators have a hard time in getting clients sometimes even though for community mediation it's often free and because I had lots and lots of these telephone calls I could zoom in on the moment where the explanation happened and figure out um, which types of explanations were going to get engagement and which ones were going to put people Mm. off and what's lovely is that these data give you a, a kind of natural laboratory because the outcome is in the encounter You're, the person is going to become your client today at the end of that encounter so you can really find out the outcome inside the conversation and yeah so I found that a, a sort of we don't take sides it's voluntary 
um, we don't have any power, we, we, we just facilitate a conversation. Those kinds of explanations, the sort of ethos of mediation, was a massive turn-off to people. Whereas if you explain the process of mediation, this happens and then this happens and this happens, that works. And I guess it's because people are phoning for help. They want to know something's going to happen. Okay. So if you tell them that something is going to happen, they're happy. If you tell them the philosophy behind something that they don't even know in the first place, you can see really why it's not very engaging. But I also found that people nevertheless will you know, resist the idea of mediating. And one of the most common ways to resist mediation is to say, well, she's the kind of person you can't talk to. So the, impl- the implication is I would mediate, but you're, yeah. you're not going to get the other person okay. because they're the kind of person who won't mediate. And that fits the caller's agenda, which is to, at every chance, say how horrible the other person is. So if they can also say the other person's really horrible and won't mediate, it's just more grist mm. to your mill. But if mediators then say, but would you be willing to just come and have a chat? And if they ask people if they're willing rather than are they interested in mediation or another verb, would they like to mediate? Um, willing gets uptake uh, in the, a way. The word willing. The word willing. Mm. And what it does is it opens up a slot for the caller to do what they want to do, which is to say, I'm the nice one. Of course I'm willing. People go from, well, I'm not really sure about this, if in response to, so would you be interested in mediating? Mm, they're not really interested in mediating. And it's not giving them an opportunity anyway by saying yes to say, yes, I'm a really interested kind of person. That doesn't really matter for this setting. Right. But if you say, are you willing? People are like, oh, yeah, I'm willing. I see. Because they kind of have to be. Because they've yeah. told you how lovely they are all the way through the call. Mm. And they've also said how unwilling and horrible the other person is. So if you get both people to agree that they're willing, you've got them into mediation. Okay, so in some ways that's playing on the kind of pre-commitment of, yeah. oh, I'm... I'm taking the call I'm in this that's yes. fine yes. but you're just then stretching them a little bit further yeah. to oh wow yeah. okay. and again you know you wouldn't you wouldn't know this unless you looked because if we all knew this and it was obvious all the mediators would already do it mm. and hardly any of them did it and actually if you ask them what are you doing that's working they can't articulate it later either because we just don't remember our conversations in that way or if we think something just went well or went wrong you know you don't know quite where it was going well or going wrong so if you know if, if you and I at the end of this conversation decided that, was a good, that wasn't a very good conversation although I'm sure we won't we'll think it was a great conversation but if it wasn't good where was it where did it start going wrong right. you wouldn't know it came down to maybe that word in that moment or that explanation in that moment so that's my job to, to, to show it to find it and then take it back to people and say do that you, it's working we're going to see it working here and here and here and here and there it is again yeah I love the fact that you mm-hmm. You, you ultimately have a yes or a no. Yeah. Am I taking up this service or am I not? Yeah. Am I buying that service or g- pair of jeans or not? Yes. So you've got an outcome, very yeah. clear. Yeah. And you can look, look at the pivot points yes. that, around it, which it exactly. spins. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so generally, if you're in, a, in the area of explaining your services, you, you think that it's stronger to explain people, this is what I do, this is the way I do it, the procedural aspect it's hard to say without looking at all of those different settings and, and, I'm, and I guess because I'm so committed to making sure that we don't give broad brush advice, we give very empirically grounded advice, I don't know. What okay. I can say is that willing certainly works in other situations yeah. um, and process-based sorting things out works with the persons, the suicidal persons in crisis so it, it's much more engaging and forward-moving if the police negotiators say I just want to speak to you and let's get things sorted out than to say let's talk people resist the idea of talking 
and if I'm here to help. So help and talk are less um, engaging and sort of forward-moving than sort and speak in wow. those negotiations, which, again, you wouldn't really necessarily Very think. Very subtle. Yeah, yeah. But you can see it straight away because, you know, if you've got a recording um, and you can see multiple examples of the negotiator asking to talk to the person in crisis, we, t- we tend not to look at these data because we think someone's going to talk or, or they won't because of their personality or... Mm. For, for all sorts of millions of other reasons that you might imagine from psychology and that might be true but if you only think about people's motivations as driving from some prior, prior personality trait you're never going to look and find the things you can find out about language right yeah wow fascinating fascinating area and lastly Liz can I ask you where's this field going and what are you working on next the field of conversation analysis is, is really evolving quickly now, I think. Uh, for a long time, we maybe didn't have the, the technology and the ability to start analysing conversations at scale, but I think that's, that's, that's quite the development that people are getting interested in now. And some sort of purist, hardcore conversation analysts are quite anti the idea of maybe coding, quantifying, scaling up. And that, that's good because I think it's really healthy to make sure that you preserve what is really valuable about conversation analysis which is that every turn is interesting and sometimes you only need one case to study because sometimes there's only there is only one of those conversations those crucial conversations you don't need loads of them to to say anything meaningful but i think there's a there's obviously a lot of interest in um all of the developments in things like conversational agents and chatbots and i'm about to go to work for a company on my study leave sabbatical next year um in barcelona where we're going to be looking at um well, let's just say sort of technology, conversation analysis and, 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 and the future of interacting online. So that's going to be interesting. Um, but I'm actually about to start a project very, very tentatively with two colleagues at Loughborough uh, in the sports uh, science field, sports coaching in particular, and even more particular, tennis parents and kids. Um, so this is Chris Harwood and Sam Thrower, and they know the kind of work I do. And we are right about to start looking at... The conversations that parents have in the car with their kid as they drive to a tournament and then the conversations that they have as they lead themselves into the tournament and then the kid goes and plays and then the conversations that happen at the end. And that, I can't really tell you anything about this yet. We've, we've just very much at the start and it's really it's their expertise and obviously I'm really tough to be in, to, to get involved in a, a project at Loughborough which brings together communication which we're well known for and sport which we're well known for and what's the space? Wow I, well I can imagine a lot of parents of, of aspiring athletes whether they're the ones pushing them or whether they're getting dragged along to the, the pool uh, will watch with bated breath and yeah. see the sorts of things they should be saying and yeah. everyone I know is very conscious of that pitch side oppression or yeah. or encouragement that, that, yeah. that can really make a difference yeah. Yeah. Uh, about how someone remembers and connects with their yeah. sport and their endeavour. Yeah. So, yeah. oh wow, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so how did this conversation go? Great. <laughs> if you'd like to find out more from Liz, you can follow her on Twitter at Liz Stoko. If you're interested in Liz's role-playing method, then have a look at www.calmtraining.org. And I'll provide details of Liz's TED Talk in the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, YouTube, and for more performance insights at supportingchampions.co.uk. And if you're already enjoying this podcast, I would really love for you to provide a review on iTunes. 
Join us next time when I'll be talking to ballerina Lucy Balfour. 